If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on today. And it was it's kind of an interesting day because uh, uh, the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, uh, had a news conference earlier today, which he laid out his, I don't know, five or six point or, I don't know, point, uh, let's say five, five point plan on housing. And one of those things that he talked about um, was that he was going to take off uh, the GST on home construction uh, in order to, you know, lower the cost for the, you know, the const- construction industry and such. And then word broke that uh, the prime minister is going to hold a news conference later today as they finish up the uh, caucus retreat in London, Ontario. And they said that they're going to drop the GST on rental housing immediately. So if you're if you're going to build rental housing, like you're a construction developer, whatever you're going to build, apartment buildings or rental construct uh, rental uh, uh, housing of some sort, you'll get uh, the rebate, which is about five percent at the national level, on the GST. So it's hilarious because um, it, it was said earlier. Uh, it broke, I guess, first with this leak from the prime minister's office. Then Polyev made his official announcement, which <laughs> this was one of the planks in his thing. And then later on today, the prime minister is going to formally announce it in a news conference uh, as he wraps up the London uh, caucus retreat. So a fascinating turn of events as everyone's trying to steal the limelight on um you know, steal the the wind out of everybody's sails. Uh, The funny thing is, is that not only was this already in uh, Polyev's plan, but it was also announced back at the 2015 election by, by the prime minister and then never, never went anywhere. So this was a campaign promise back in 2015. And then the new accelerator fund, which was started like 18 months ago, just announced its first project yesterday. So obviously the, the prime minister is, is, and the liberals are in fast retreat, trying to spin on a dime as quickly as they can, uh, now aware that the crisis du jour for them is housing. And like I said to you the other day, I have never heard the words come out of Trudeau's mouth that came out yesterday. And again, right now, he's, he, we'll see in the news conference coming up a little later on today, but sounding more like a conservative and basically offering the same thing that's in their, pl- in their platform. So, uh, it's pretty funny how this has changed. And again, a lot of it on, uh, the news of polls that continue to plummet for the prime minister. The prime minister is in the basement. So obviously he wants out and a new home like most of the young people who uh, are, are struggling with buying a home today. So and, and, and this just continues to pile on with a brand new abacus poll that come out today showing the conservatives 15 points ahead of the liberals. It was 14. Now it's 15. 
15 points ahead of the liberals. So uh, obviously the liberals are incredibly desperate, trying desperate to spin this all around. So we're going to see some very uh, big campaigns, I'm sure, soon of um, whatever it is the liberals are doing. And, you know, hearing more about it, they they insist that they haven't been communicating to you enough of what they're doing. I would suggest this has nothing to do with the communication at all. Uh, people just, uh, you know, don't think it's working anymore. It's just not there. There's no management of this. And now um, the, the prime minister bringing back things that he promised back in 2015. Now that the poop has hit the fan. And again, a new abacus poll today showing the Conservatives 15 points ahead of the Liberals. It's clear to see uh, that they are getting frustrated, which is good to see that they're finally realizing that they're in a massive, uh, you know, they're in massive trouble here. Um, but in, they seem to be getting, um, <laughs> they seem to be getting a little uh, frustrated. Uh, here was a clip of Melanie Jolie the other day when she was asked about uh, during the caucus meetings in London, what the mood was uh, in those meetings. What's the mood in caucus? Um, Marike, you've been asking me this question over the past three days. I've answered five times. Now you've had the now you've had the first meeting with the yeah. first time with the prime minister there, but you're waking up to more polls showing you guys even further behind. So we had good conversations. I need to get into caucus to continue to participate in these conversations, and I think the mood is good. We're, as I said yesterday, we are having difficult sometimes conversations, but important conversations. Canadians are hurting because of the impacts of, of, of inflation, because of the impacts of interest rates, and uh, as a government, we hear them, we're with them, and we'll do more. There you have it. Uh, I think we were one step away from... <laughs> I think we're almost there. It's like an angry dog on a T-bone there. Uh, anyway, uh, I- I- at least uh, the once great liberal party, left-of-center liberal party, has realized they have veered way too far to the left and are finally coming back to the center. Uh, whether that is enough to, to stop the bleeding, uh, which is happening right now, only time will tell. Do you know what a UAP is? United Auto Parts? No, maybe, I don't know. Uh, NASA has released their report on UAPs, formerly known as UFOs. I just want to know why the heck they changed the name. Uh, and it's not really earth shattering, but they did stress that there are events that as of yet defy explanation. And that's what makes space so cool. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. And indeed, Scott, always nice to chat with you. Yeah, here too as well, Paul. So what? why the name change from UFOs to UAPs? And can uh, tell us what UAP means, stands for. Well, theoretically, it's unidentified aerial phenomena. But if you go to the NASA website, their panel is unidentified anomalous phenomena. So I'm not real sure what the real going UAP expression is. Uh, but the reason it changed was, I, I guess, a sign of the times. UFO has a bit of a stigma to it. Unidentified flying objects, you know, you and I have grown up with them for literally decades. And mm-hmm. there is a bit of a stigma associated with talking about them if you're a professional. And one of the big thrusts at the moment is to try to get away from that stigma so that we can get more credible observations of these things, so we can perhaps come to a good consensus as to what they really are. 
So it's it's a better name with less baggage, I guess. So it's to remove the extraterrestrial portion of this discussion? <laughs> well, in a way it is. I mean, I've said to you many, many times when we've discussed this, UFOs are only UFOs until there's enough information and they become IFOs, identified flying objects. I don't have a problem with the UFO, but people do associate those letters with an extraterrestrial origin. They should not jump to that conclusion, but they do. And so, as you say, UFO becoming UAP hopefully gets away from that association as well. So uh, I guess more information is better than keeping it in Area 51 or whatever it was behind closed doors. At least now, if NASA is more transparent about this and says and say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, people will be more at ease with this. I think that is part of it. It's not just NASA. There are a lot of aircraft pilots who make reports of Mm. UFOs, UAPs, and they're worried about, or they have been in the past, worried about losing their jobs, their credibility uh, Mm. if they do report it. So it certainly goes beyond NASA. NASA has a lot of expertise, obviously a lot of satellite technology, a lot of surveillance from above, which could contribute significantly to our understanding of what a UAP really is. So it's it's a matter of putting all of our cards on the table. Now, having said that, of course, don't expect all of the militaries on the planet to put all of their cards on the table. And personally, I suspect that a lot of our UFOs, UAPs are indeed a variety of differing military activities, and they are not about to come forward and say, oh, yeah, that was us flying over there at three times the speed of sound and low to the deck and and so on and so forth. So I'm not real sure how close we are to unraveling these mysteries, but it's a step closer if we have more credible information. Are there more uh, reports of these now than there were, say, back in the 1950s when all this was all the rage and the Twilight Zone was big and such? Are we getting more uh, reports of this? Yes, we are. Uh, But we're not getting any more credible reports than we did 50 years ago. But yes, the the number of reports uh, is is ballooning. It, It goes up and down cyclically. But generally speaking, there are more people looking to the skies. There are more right. people outside. And let's face it, there's more things flying around the place that even you and I know about. Your next door neighbor probably has one or two drones, for example, that buzz your backyard to take photographs. So there's a lot more stuff flying around. And with technology, obviously, the public has become more aware and more curious of all of this. Absolutely, they have. No question in the world. And and it, it's topical. Uh, science fiction, Marvel, DC universes. I mean, you know, mm. the, there's a big craze at the moment, more so than there has been for 20 or 30 years, in the realm of science fiction, speculative fiction. And that just fuels people's attitudes. They see something that they can't identify. They don't put in very much effort, and they immediately jump to the conclusion that you know Thor's hammer is wandering through the atmosphere, or Iron Man is coming down. And, and <laughs> I like science fiction; don't get me wrong, but you've got to put it. You've got to compartmentalize it. You've got to separate fact from fiction, and the way you do that is with better observations, more credible observations. Uh, obviously, Paul, you've been doing this for a long time, going back to the space race and such uh, of the 60s. And, and we remember, uh, you know, everybody was glued for the first few Apollo missions. Then by the end, nobody cares. It's kind of like space shuttles and such uh, in the 80s. Are we as interested now? It seems we are as interested now as we were during those days. 
Again, it's it's cyclic uh, or cyclical. Certainly in the 70s, there was a big dip in interest. The space shuttle brought that alive again in the 80s, but you could argue that it dipped again in the 90s. Uh, certainly at the moment, with all of the added private entrepreneurial activities, things like Virgin Galactic, things like Blue Origin, Axiom Space, there is now a, a, a realization that the space frontier, the microgravity, you and I could go and experience that. And that was something that was not possible, you know, even 10 years ago, let alone 40 or 50 years ago. So, yes, I think there is a lot more interest because it can actually touch people. We are seeing everyday citizens, not just experienced pilots and astronauts, flying into space. And that, I think, has got everybody's interest peaked. Axiom Space wants to put a space station, a private space station, a hotel, if you will, in Earth orbit by the end of the 2020s. Well, you can bet that they'll be booked up years in advance. Wow. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Always fascinating, Paul. Thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Clear skies to you. Putin and Kim's renewed collaboration is bad news for Asian democracies and for Ukraine. That is the article in the Globe and Mail published by Arl Brown or written by Arl Brown, professor of political science, international relations at the University of Toronto and associated Harvard University's Davis Center. And uh, Arl is with us now. Thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. So obviously, um, uh, the uh, Kim Jong Un and and as well as Putin are together. It, it appears Putin's running out of ammunition. He needs help from North Korea. With that, uh, they obviously need food, starving, money, what have you. Uh, it seems like a I don't know a natural uh, collaboration. That being said, where is China in all of this, and how long do they let these two? Uh, scheme, I guess, for lack of a better word. Formerly, China just reported this visit as a matter of fact. But if you look at the very stiff language that they used, there was a diplomatic message of concern. There was nothing that was uh, uh, remotely a, a matter of praising this visit. And I think what China is concerned with is that not only is it that North Korea, which has been economically dependent on China, uh, North Korea's economic relations are largely with China. But when Kim Jong-un said that now he wants to make Russia as his prime focus in foreign policy, this has been an affront to China. When there's a possibility that a military deal, which likely would be camouflaged at first, could alarm the uh, democracies in Asia, Japan, and South Korea, and induce them to heavily increase uh, really sharply more than they are doing now, their defense spending, that would change the balance of power in the Far East, and that affects China. So I think overall, the Chinese, at the very least, seem to be rather concerned. Would they have known about this? Would they have given the thumbs up, or would have they? would they have known ahead of time about this? They may have known I had, uh, of this. We don't know if they gave the thumbs up. If they did, it's difficult to see how they would favor uh, this uh, visit because at one level, China operates on the basis of a kind of binary relationship with the United States, meaning that anything that harms American interests, uh, they believe would uh, help 
China's position. But this is a much more complicated situation where there can be very negative blowback. And uh, Kim Jong-un is a highly unpredictable character. And the kind of love fest that uh, he had engaged in in Russia. And if you look at the language of this visit, there's something almost kind of bizarre about it. Uh, it is an Orwellian inversion of both uh, logic and language. Upon arrival, Vladimir Putin praised the North Korean leader, greeted him as a major world leader, said at the Ostochny Cosmodrome that uh, uh, Putin is sure that North Korea and Russia, quote, will remain together in our fight against imperialism. And uh, the North Korean leader replied, Russia, which, as we know, had uh, brazenly violated international law and invaded Ukraine. Russia, he said, Kim Jong-un, has risen to a sacred, as to a sacred fight to its sovereignty and security against hegemonic forces. North Korea supports all Putin's decisions. Um, who is playing who here, or is everyone playing each other? Everyone is playing each other. There is desperation in the case of Russia and desperation in the case of North Korea, as you pointed out. The Russians now, in the 19th month of their invasion, which was supposed to have ended in a few days with a victory parade for uh, uh, Vladimir Putin in Kiev, you may recall that some of the forces that invaded Ukraine in February of 2022 were carrying dress uniforms because they thought they were going to have a parade. And Russia is not winning that war. Uh, in fact, it is losing the war. It's losing huge numbers of soldiers. Uh, Vladimir Putin may not care much about that, but they're also losing uh, vast quantities of armaments, and they are very short of munition, and Russia cannot manufacture it fast enough. It has difficulty sourcing this elsewhere, and North Korea has an enormous amount of ammunition, and even though it is a wretchedly poor country where the population is suffering terribly, and they suffer all sorts of shortages in this malnutrition, they do have these large industries and they can provide the Russian military with a lifeline. In the case of Kim Jong-un, what he wants more than food, uh, more than even money, is Russian military technology. It was not accidental that they met at this Vostochny Cosmodrome because he wants to have better satellite technology. The attempts by North Korea to launch by satellites failed on both occasions. Russia has that technology. Uh, Kim Jong-un also wants to have both conventional technology, uh, more advanced technology, and more advanced nuclear technology to miniaturize warheads, to make uh, nuclear-powered uh, submarines that would carry ballistic missiles. Whereas it is unlikely, highly unlikely, that Russia would share what I would call the crown jewels of Russian technology with North Korea, they may nonetheless give them significant technology, and this would present a threat to the world at large because those missiles uh, that uh, North Korea has could not only reach United States and Canada, for that matter, but could also carry effective warheads. Certainly, the democracies in the region would be alarmed, and I think they have to face that reality, that even though 
there has been a great deal of vagueness about what is being done, it would be a safe assumption that given that this is very much a transactional relationship, that Kim Jong-un traveled to Russia for the first time outside of his country to any place since 2019, he's not going to leave uh, home uh, for home empty-handed. He has, in fact, extended his visit. He still is in Russia. And so I think we are likely to see evidence of uh, a very significant uh, military relationship between these two countries when we notice uh, large quantities of North Korean ammunition and weapons flowing into Ukraine via the Russian forces. So I think NATO has to be alert to this, as well as the democracies in the Paris, Japan, and South Korea. They have to up their defense capabilities significantly. Uh, what role does he talk about nuclear technology and sharing that with uh, North Korea, Russia sharing that with North Korea? What about nukes? What about nuclear warheads? Um, obviously, two rogue states, poor. Uh, Russia has not been able to take Ukraine, but you put the two of them together and you add uh, nukes into that. What can we expect? It's doubtful that Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine because that would be suicidal. And as I noted uh, before, I think even on your program, that uh, a, a Russian leader who wears uh, $400 Brioni shirts and uh, uh, $5,000 suits is not suicidal. And uh, therefore, uh, it is extremely unlikely that those nuclear weapons would be used in Ukraine. But both uh, Putin and Kim Jong-un are master blackmailers in the international system, and they may use the threat of nuclear weapons as a means of trying to extract concessions. In the case of uh, the North Korean leader, he wants to feel important. And in that process, he is likely, if he has more weapons, to increase the threats that he has already made. Now, the problem for him, of course, is that there is also a reaction to that. And if the reaction is that uh, Japan, particularly, which has enormous industrial capacity, as well as South Korea, which is a large exporter already of uh, armaments, they then both increase defense spending and begin to send significant armaments to Ukraine. That can change the balance in Ukraine. That can uh, uh, negate whatever help uh, uh, North Korea gives to Russia. And also in the Far East, the balance would be changed. And China would be very unhappy about that as well. Arl Brown with us, Professor of Political Science, International Relations, University of Toronto, and Associate at Harvard University's Davis Center, talking about the relationship between uh, Russia and North Korea. As always, Arl, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right, if you like the boots and the cowboy hats, you're going to love it this weekend in the Hammer. The Canadian Country Music Awards are back. Ryan McHugh is with his manager of tourism and events with the city of Hamilton and here now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So, Supercrawl last weekend, Canadian Country Music Awards this weekend, and uh, not a bad month for the Hammer. Yeah, lot, lots of parties in uh, in the Hammer and some great music. And, uh, you know, this week, it's, it's all country. So, this is um, the Canadian Country Music Awards. The last time we had this event in Hamilton was 2018. Uh, it was a huge success. And this is the 
pinnacle of Canadian country music. So whether you're a country music fan or just a fan of great music, we encourage you to come on down and enjoy all of the uh, festivities. And again, it's not all about the award show. Uh, tell everybody what's going on over the course of the next few days. Yeah, absolutely. And it is um, everything from, you know, industry conferences to free shows at various uh, theaters. But really the the main uh, two events um, is tonight we have the CMA Legend Show. Uh, so that's at the first Ontario Concert Hall, so the former Hamilton Place. And this is just, uh, these ones are fun. These are just uh, artists past and present just coming together, having a great time. So just to list off a few of the names for your listeners, uh, Patricia Conroy, Jade Eagleson, George Fox, the Good Brothers, uh, Jason McCoy is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. So for those, uh, you know, who really uh, like country music or uh, just want to see some good music, this is just artists up on stage and in a small, intimate setting, having a lot of fun. So that's uh, this one tonight. And then the big show is tomorrow night at the First Ontario Centre. Uh, so the show is at eight o'clock and uh, these are the big award show with um, the Rec Laws who will be hosting the show and just a long list of performers, Sam Hunt, Carly Pence, Cooper Allen, uh, Jade Eagleson, High Valley, the list goes on and on and on. But uh, as I did mention, Scott, it's not just the two big shows. Um, there's different shows at lots of music venues throughout the city, um, you know, about a dozen shows, to be quite frank. Um, so we'd encourage your listeners to go to ccma.org or download the Get in the Loop app on either their uh, Apple device or Android. And it has a whole listing of all the great events, um, some free, some ticketed uh, for people of all price points. So what does this do for the city of Hamilton to host an event like this over a weekend? Yeah, and this is one, uh, you know, as Tourism Hamilton, this is uh, the story I love to tell. And when you get an event like this, it's, you know, more flights into our airports, our transportation providers are busy, our hotels are full. Bars and restaurants are full. And one nice thing about um, country music as a genre, it's a group that likes to have a lot of fun. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe a couple uh, extra drinks and cocktails there. So our bars do well. Our restaurants do well. Uh, you know, for the show itself, it's a great live active crowd. And one thing uh, about Canadian country music, it's, it's really a, a, a tight knit community. So really you get each year, if the events in Hamilton, you get this community coming in and embracing the city. And it's just a, a really cool thing to see. So uh, would encourage your listeners, put on that cowboy hat, put on those boots, get out there and have some fun. And what about exposure across the country outside of the city limits? What does this do for Hamilton on the, yeah. on the, on the Canadian stage? Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, a nationally televised uh, uh, broadcast and uh, it really, you know, as a host city, things like this, Great Cup, like we have in uh, November, um, RBC yeah. Canadian Open. These these really, you know, do put the city on the map, and it really allows us to tell our own narrative, right? You know, we are a city full of uh, great music, great artists. Uh, you know, we're we're more than a couple steel plants, right? We have our beautiful waterfront uh, investment, in our downtown core. So it really allows us to roll out the red carpet and, and tell our story and. That's one thing, uh, you know, if you watch um, the broadcast on the Saturday, you know, you'll see lots of B-roll footage of the beautiful waterfalls, waterfront, um, just really sell Hamilton as a destination and, you know, uh, to come and play or, you know, if you own a business, invest a few dollars and set up shop here. And, you know, Ryan, whenever these events come in and they're televised and such, they always do their best to make the city look so great, which is cool to watch. 
Yeah, it is. And uh, a lot, a lot of time and effort goes into putting on an event like this. And, you know, as a host city, you, you invest uh, a lot. And it um, it really is important to maximize the opportunity to, to tell your story and shine the best light you can. And as Hamilton, we do have so many positives. And this will be a great opportunity to celebrate each and every one of those. Canadian Country Music Awards in Hamilton this weekend. Ryan McHugh with us, Manager of Tourism and Events with the City of Hamilton. Get your boots and hat. Get down there. Ryan, thanks for the time. Be be well. Good luck with this. Thank you so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we uh, know that uh, First Ontario Centre is getting renovated, uh, but we're sort of every so often hearing conflicting stories as to when it actually is going to start, when the actual last event is going to be there. And now we hear the Toronto Rock, who obviously make Hamilton their home, has announced today that they'll be able to finish up their season at First Ontario Centre because of new delays in the Renos. To talk more about all of this, Jamie Dowick is with us, owner of Toronto Rock, and with us now. Jamie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. So uh, this is good news. Tell us what you know. Yeah, well, um, it's great news for us um, because we just kind of get to continue on. You know, we still feel like building our foundation in Hamilton. But, um, you know, when we get into projects like this, I guess delays happen. And, and, you know, for whatever reason, um, some delays have happened that have enabled us to, to play our entire season this year um, at First Ontario Centre. So uh, we're super excited about that. We knew there was a possibility. Um, you know, then we thought there might be a few games that we could play there. Like we maintained all along was we were going to play until we couldn't play there any longer. And if that meant two games, it meant two games. If it meant four games, it meant four games. And, you know, thankfully it, it, it's turning out that it's worked out to be the entire season. So, um, you know, things are, things are all falling in place relatively nicely now. And, and, and we're, we're real excited that we can just focus on Hamilton and our games there this year and, and not have any interruption for the time being. When is your home schedule officially over? Um, our home schedule will, the regular season will end at the end of April. And when did you first find out about this, Jamie, that you're going to be able to finish the season at First Ontario? Well, I, honestly, I mean, I found out I was going to be able to finish the season at First Ontario yesterday. Um, now, I've known that you know, we were going to be able to play some games there. And, you know, I felt like the timeline um, kept getting moved back. I mean, you know how it is. Any big deals like this, like, Mm. you know, deals need to be signed. And then once deals are signed, you know, there's a period of time that's needed after that before you can get everything in place to actually get underway and get doing things. So, um, you know, as uh, you know, and, and these deals take a long time to sign because they're big, complex deals. So um, I'm obviously not involved in any of that. But as that seemed to be getting delayed a little bit, we, you know, we were under a lot of assumptions that the longer it gets delayed to get signed, the more chance there is that we could play the season. Um, you know, we we 
over the last month or so, I would say we've kind of been hopeful that we might be getting to that point. And then, you know, just in the, in the very recent um, couple days, um, we've been made aware of that, that we are going to be able to do that. So. Have you been in constant contact, Jamie, with the, uh, with the consortium that's, that's doing all of this? I'm definitely getting enough information that, you know, I expect and maybe deserve as a, as a kind of a key tenant in that building. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I've been in the loop probably, I would say I've been in the loop as much as I really need to be. Um, you know, they don't need to update me on a day-to-day basis on what's going on. I understand that. Um, but you know, they have, uh, given me information, you know, as I kind of need it and, and they can give me right. Like, um, you know, in, in big projects, a lot of things are out of control, and you know, there's there's no point in them giving me an update if they don't have an update that's meaningful for me. But um, I, I have no complaint. You know, I would say I, I think we have a as great, good of a working relationship as as we can have and and need be. And uh, you know, they everyone's been very accommodating and and pleasant. You know, I have a great relationship with all those people, so uh, everything's good there. What does this mean for The Rock to not have this disruption, and did you have backup plans ready? Obviously, you did. Well, yeah. I mean, we had announced um, that, you know, when we had to leave uh, First Ontario Centre, we were going to go to the Paramount Centre in Mississauga. Uh, A lot went into the decision um, it was a tough decision to make, you know, there aren't a lot of great options. Um, you know, we chose Hamilton for a reason and, and you know, we, we did some, we did decide that Paramount center made most sense in the, in the time being. Um, and, and everything was set up and ready to go for them. We thought we were going to start our season there. And as things became aware that, um, we might be able to play some games in Hamilton, they, they were great. They've been awesome along the way and and you know because they just kind of stood there and waited for us and they understood that if we could play in Hamilton we were going to play in Hamilton so they've kind of um you know and they would have just kind of found out recently now like immediately now kind of that we're not going to be there this year um but we will be there the following year we know that confidently uh and you know, we won't be changing venues midstream in the season like we were going to potentially this year. Mm. I think we'll make it easier. And, you know, our hope is when the original timeline came out, you know, there was a talk about two years. And, you know, my hope is that we're only going to have to leave the Hamilton area for one year now. And mm-hmm. uh, if everything goes as planned. And, and you know, to me, that's, that's a huge win for, for us. Jamie uh, Dowick. That's I gotta where c- we want to be. Jamie Dowick with us, owner of the Toronto Rock. Uh, great news is uh, First Ontario Centre going to be hosting the entire season for the Toronto Rock. Jamie, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate that. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, or may not know, uh, the Liberal Caucus is meeting in London, Ontario. Those meetings are wrapping up today. We're supposed to hear a uh, a news conference from the Prime Minister uh, in regard to another housing announcement. Uh, we'll uh, keep you abreast of that as soon as we hear more. Um, but obviously, woke up this morning to new information from Abacus Data uh, released showing that the Conservatives have jumped to a lead of 15 points ahead of the Liberals who are trailing. And if election were held today, 41% of committed voters would vote Conservative, Liberals at 26%, NDP at 18 and the Greens at 4 To talk more about all of this, Richard Jenkins is with us, Vice President of Research and Chief Methodologist with Abacus Data and here now. Richard, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. So um, this continues to uh, uh, I guess more bad news for the Liberals. Obviously, a housing announcement and the Liberal Caucus uh, in London over the last couple of days. This would have been taken ahead of that, would it have not? These these results. Yes, um, before the uh, Liberal Caucus started. So um, we don't know yet how that that event will impact the, the vote. So do uh, any anticipation in there, any prediction? It's kind of odd. This just keeps getting worse. You don't see any sign of improvement at this point? There, does, there doesn't look like there's going to be any improvement. Um, it just keeps getting worse. And the vote numbers didn't go get a lot worse this time. But all of the other numbers, um, the, the extent to which people think that the, the uh, government's doing a good job, declined by a number of points. Um, so the, the approval rate for the government is, is hit a real, real low. I think what's surprising about this too is if you look along uh, across the country in various regions, I mean, obviously the West, a stronghold for the Conservatives and such, Alberta, Saskatchewan especially, but even the numbers in BC where they're showing about 52% uh, for the Conservatives, uh, Atlantic Canada, another big change. Are you surprised at those regions uh, changing their their stance. Yeah, it's a it's a big shift, um, and it, it's not all that surprising given what we know about what voters care about right now, and they care about affordability, and that's not the liberal strength at this at this moment. What and about you know? Yep, go ahead, go ahead. I, w- I was just going to say the other thing about it's not just region; it's age. What what's really shocking about this? this data over the last month or so is that 18 to 29 year olds have basically abandoned the liberal party. What about female voters? Uh, female voters, always the strong suit for uh, the liberals and a tough haul for conservatives. How, how has that changed or has it? Well, it's, they, they still do better among women, but not that much better. In fact, 35% of women would vote conservative if the election was held today. That's the highest rate. Um, and so, you know, the, the conservatives have a massive lead among men, but they are now polling well among women. Where does the NDP stand in all of this? Obviously, they're still uh, trailing the liberals. Has the partnership between the NDP and the liberals helped the NDP at all? It doesn't look like it at all. It, it's basically the NDP has held on to its core support, but as the liberals have uh, faltered, none of those liberal voters aren't going to the NDP. They're going to the Conservative Party. 
how long does it take to change a trend like this? What? Why are we so concerned about this now? The election is two uh, years away, still possibly, unless there's a change in that NDP liberal agreement. Um, but but why is this so surprising, astonishing, newsworthy now? Uh, because it's so consistent. I think it's the consistency. It's the size of the of the gap. Um, we haven't seen a gap this big in a long time, and this would certainly, if it held up lead to a majority conservative government, so a pretty big change in the politics of Canada. That said, it's we're not about to have an election, and the the Conservative Party has had the advantage over the summer. They spent a lot of money on ads, and Parliament's been at recess, so the, the Liberals will have a better chance to set the agenda going into the fall. Um, it's just ratcheted up the pressure on them in, to an unbelievable level, uh, given where they're sta- standing in the polls. What has to be done, and I know you can't answer this, but what has to be done in order to turn this ship? Can it be turned? I mean, obviously, there's an awful lot of runway here. Or does that more time for more to get to know Pierre Polyev? Well, I think that the more time means more knowledge about and maybe even more comfort with Polyev, though that that can change. And the Liberals have not been on the attack very much over the last month. Um, I think things can change. A big event can change things. When COVID hit, that had a big, huge boost for, for most mm-hmm. governments uh, in, the, in the country. And it happened sort of overnight. Um, Doug Ford here in Ontario boosted his popularity by being lucky enough to be premier when the, when the COVID uh, pandemic hit. So things can happen. And I think the big, big thing is whether or not the Liberals can set an agenda for the fall that shows that they're addressing the things that Canadians care about. Uh, many times the parties think we're more uh, uh, dedicated to the stripe than than what we are. Um, and, you know, my guy or girl is better than your guy or girl. And this is better than that and such. Is this and in, 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 I believe this in, in voting in general. Are we necessarily voting for who we want or are we voting for who we don't want? I think every election is a little bit different. I think Trudeau came in. With that, with hope and optimism and sunny days, and I think people voted for that. They wanted that. Um, I, I, it looks like what's happening now is the opposite. Anybody but him kind of uh, view, and they're not buying the optimism now. And all they see is pessimism about what's happening in Canada. And I think that's that's important. Uh, that said, with more part, more than two parties, there's a lot more room for voters to go somewhere else. Right. And, for example, in the United States, where you really are stuck. Yeah. Um, what if the Liberals had a new leader? Would that change things drastically for them? Uh, I'll leave it at that. It could. Um, it would depend who that leader is. Are they tarnished with some of the baggage from this government? Or so, if it's one of the current ministers, can they shake off that baggage if they were if they became leader? Um, it's hard to say. It doesn't change the fundamentals, though, of inflation, housing affordability. All of those things are still going to be facing the next leader if, if the liberals later change. And that doesn't look like that's likely. 
Uh, as you said, affordability, housing, obviously a huge issue. I remember uh, talking to a pundit a few weeks ago as this was really uh, hitting the fan and saying that, that uh, housing is the hot-button issue. Considering where we are and the shortage and the lack of supply and what we haven't built in the last uh, several years, do you think this is going to be a major or a hot-button issue for several years? I think so because it's so salient and so easy to grasp. Everyone can grasp that the housing is really expensive and it fits within the broader narrative really well. Everything is more expensive and you can see it in the housing and it has such a visceral impact on people when they see their children or their friends unable to get into the housing market, unable to afford rent. Because uh, it's not just the buying a house, it's even finding a place to, to rent. Um, and all those things you know, a house is so important to people. And I think it's just that narrative is, is with us for a while, I think. Richard Jenkins with us, Vice President of Research and Chief Methodologist with Abacus Data. New information out this morning from Abacus Data uh, showing the Conservatives have jumped to a lead of 15 points ahead of the federal Liberals. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. Thanks. Bye. Obviously, we were talking just with Abacus Data moments ago, and uh, the Prime Minister and the Liberals, federal Liberals, have uh, some issues on their hands with declining popularity and uh, being seen as out of touch by many Canadians. Uh, they made a step towards changing all of that with the first of many, they say, municipal agreements under the federal government's Housing Accelerator Fund. On Wednesday, a step to uh, the Liberals framing as an example how they plan to tackle the issue that has become so pressing for many Canadians. To talk more about about all of this, Daniel Perry is with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, and here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. So, Daniel, your take on the uh, uh, the Liberal Caucus meeting in meetings in London? Success, failure, somewhere in between? What's your take on on what happened? Uh, well, well, I think this is a good first step. Uh, housing, as we heard from our friends over at Advocates a little bit earlier, is an issue that's top of mind for Canadians and something that has kind of created a black eye on the Liberals' face throughout the summer. So they're taking steps to deal with it. So I think it's the first step uh, that needs to be done. And I think coming out of caucus with a big announcement like this, it's good for a government that, to be frank, had a pretty bad summer. And obviously, uh, you know, making announcements now that people want to hear. What about being too uh, too little too late to the game? It seems that whatever the crisis du jour is, all of a sudden uh, they're going to spin on it and they've got something to say. Are, are people going to look at this and say, well, why didn't you do this? This was part of a an election promise back in 2015. Why are we doing it now? Could this backfire? Is there backlash? Uh, absolutely. It definitely can be seen as the government just pandering, which is something a government doesn't want to be seen. They want to be seen as leaders responding to issues. And I think that's how the liberals will be spinning this. So they will say that we understand housing is an issue and this is our approach to dealing with it. And it was a very important part of the uh, supply agreement that they have with the NDP. So it's another checkbox in that sense. But I think opposition parties, much like the Conservatives, are very happy to point out it took them over eight years to get this done, and they're only doing it now to save their political vibe. So how can we actually trust them? I would say the answer lies somewhere between those two. 
Uh, how do you explain them missing the boat here? Because it seems obvious, uh, and not just recently. This has been going on for a while. The housing situation was was an issue before the pandemic. How do you explain that they just missed the boat by 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 so far? I mean, it, it seems odd that it's taken this for them to redirect their focus. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think it, it shows the Liberals dropped the ball. I think it shows some weakness that they're not listening to Canadians. And they have been listening to Canadians. When you talk with Liberals here in Ottawa, they point to saying, oh, COVID took up so much of our time. It was so important. We responded and got vaccines and provided Canadians with support. So some other priorities like housing were put aside. But I think when we talk to Canadians now, they agree that the Liberals approach to COVID was good, but it could have been better. And I think they would apply the same kind of lens to the housing approach that they kind of just let it slide for too long. And now it's really caught up with them. It's kind of like you're a student. uh, You don't really do anything throughout the whole year. And then exams come and you realize you have to start studying. I think the liberals have that panic moment. Oh, my. Uh, You know, the liberals have been accused of being too heavy on the social issues and not enough about managing the country, not enough about business, not enough about uh, economics. What can they do to convince Canadians that all of a sudden uh, they're brilliant when it comes to stuff like this after they've ignored it for so long and have concentrated more on social issues to to win elections? Well, I think the, uh, the science department needs to put some more money into building a time machine. Scott, so we can go back in time and fix some of these issues. <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, I think this has always been an issue for the liberals. They're not always the strongest on economic issues, especially um, when the economy is at a place where it is right now, which is on par with a toilet. So I think they're going to have a hard time trying to do that. And that's why they're going to try to focus more on social issues, talking about the environment, what they're doing to make um, future generations in a better spot in that sense. But I think they're going to struggle on the economy front. And I think they're aware of that. So it's going to be hard for them to get ahead of this issue because I think the the bull has left the barn. What about dissension within the ranks? I mean, we had a liberal MP stand up and say she can't afford a house during this uh, during this caucus meeting. We've heard reports that the, the, the prime minister is not listening to peers. He's not listening to MPs. What about the dissension within the ranks? I think there's a I think there's a lot of frustration now with inside the Liberal Party. Look, they're down in the polls by 15 points. That means a lot of their members, their jobs are on the line. Um, and there is a lot of anger when it comes to that because hey, if I was losing, if I might be losing my job too, I'd be pretty mad. Um, so I think what that needs to happen in this coming session of Parliament that starts on Monday, the government needs to get out of Ottawa more and, and try to start listening to Canadians and hearing what they're actually talking about. And it's going to be an issue that they don't want to hear, but they still need to find solutions to that. So if they have more in in the housing fund and uh, plans to fix housing, they may want to get that rolling because the time's ticking, I think. Uh, You've heard them say that they've got to do a better job of communicating what the success that they have had and that they've Mm -hmm. let Pierre Polyev get ahead of them and not attacked him enough. If the policy's not there, how will any of this help? Exactly. And the Liberals for the past couple of elections have been the party that has been able to communicate the best. But it seems like in recent years, they've seemed to figure, they seem to forgot how to communicate properly and have just tried to get sound points for social media. And that's not how government is run. So I think they better go back to basics. If they want to try to get ahead of this and communicate it correctly, they're going to have to come up with some good ideas that actually work. And that's usually the hardest part of being in government. 
Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, with us commenting on the Liberal Caucus meetings winding up in London this afternoon. Daniel, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Same to you. Take care, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Very interesting today as uh, uh, the Liberal Caucus winds up its uh, meetings in London, Ontario, and they uh, start making announcements. uh, And at the same time, Pierre Polyev's making announcements, and it's all on housing. And it's amazing how all of a sudden some of the programs seem to be the same. It's like everybody's... I don't know, a conservative now? Kind of like way back when in the last provincial election when every single party, including the Greens, the Liberals, and the NDP, who never talk about this, was said, oh, we all got to build a million and a half homes. Uh, how did we get here and why didn't they do that and, uh, a long time ago? We wouldn't maybe be here. Uh, that being said, uh, one that has come out today and it was also uh, a part of Polyev's plan as well is a removal of the GST from new construction uh, for of rental units uh, in response to obviously the rise of cost of living. This is going to help the builders bring the cost down. Let's bring in Mike Collins, uh, Mike Collins Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association and with us now. Mike, thank Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Your thoughts on this, I guess, initially brought forth back in 2015 as an election campaign uh, promise and then got shelved. What's your thoughts on this coming back now? Well, better late than never, but this is an absolute game changer for housing uh, in uh, not just Hamilton, but across Ontario and across Canada. You know, for decades, we have not been building enough rental housing and it's reached a crisis level. Uh, rents in most Canadian cities have been going up between 10 and 20%, not just in the last year, but every year for the last two or three years. So this measure announced by the federal government and, and Minister Fraser earlier today is going to go a long way to improving the viability of purpose-built rental projects, um, which, you know, as a business model, have been pretty challenging for the last number of decades. And that's why the industry has been advocating for this change in the tax regime for for many, many years. So we're very pleased that the announcement came today. Uh, You've been asking for this for many years. It was been promised years ago. You're calling this a game changer. It sounds very simple, Mike. How come people didn't, politicians didn't realize this a long time ago? It's a game changer, you said. Well, the GST was brought back in in the early 90s. And when it was brought in, it was a brand new tax on new housing. Um, and you know, it, it affected the economics of how housing worked. And, you know, we didn't build a whole lot of rental housing through the nineties, the early two thousands. And it's, it's started to pick up in the last number of years, but when you don't build rental housing, um, at a large scale for 30 years with the kind of population growth we've been seeing, uh, it ends up in a crisis situation. And then in 2009 here on Ontario, we we harmonized the GST with the old PST. And, mm. you know, that old PST didn't apply to new rental housing. So overnight, about a decade and a half ago, that was another massive tax increase that absolutely killed the market for new rental mm. buildings. Um, so it, it's, it's a big change in terms of how we tax housing. And we need to have a tax regime that incentivizes the type of housing we want, which is rental housing. Uh, some may say I'm playing devil's advocate here, Mike, this will just get sucked up in the price. It won't affect the consumer in any way. I think the big issue here is that we're not building enough. This changes the game for the economic viability because to be blunt, um, basically developers ask, will it pencil? 
So a for-profit builder or developer, they're not going to build unless it makes economic sense to do, do so. Mm-hmm. So the revenue from building a home must sufficiently exceed the costs. And that's particularly challenging when we need homes to be affordable to families across the income spectrum. And unfortunately, many much-needed purpose-built projects, they just weren't economically viable with the existing tax structure. The new tax structure changes that, and that means we're going to see more construction, more options, more rental housing. How long before we see this uh, actual re- actual results? How long before people, consumers, notice this? Well, the announcement takes effect today. And what I'm also encouraged by is the province also has played a big role here. You know, Despite having that 8% share of the HST that I mentioned back that came in in 2009, the province doesn't actually control the HST rules. It harmonized uh, with the GST, so the federal government controls the rules. So the good news comes twice, because it's not just a federal announcement. Later this afternoon, the province also announced that they would roll out uh, the same program for the provincial share of the HST. And I think this is a perfect example of governments aligning, working together to solve the housing crisis. Back in March, Ontario's finance minister, Peter Bethenfolby, called out the feds to, to make this move on the HST. And, you know, as I said, it was literally an hour after the federal announcement, we had Ontario's new Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Paul Calandra, and the finance minister announced that they welcome the changes. Um, So I I wish this happened more often, but here we have a liberal federal government and a conservative provincial government working together in lockstep to solve problems with two huge announcements in one day. Why not keep going? Why just rental housing? If it seems to be such a game changer, if it's so obvious... Why not just keep going? Well, I I hope that this is the start of uh, a fresh look at our tax regime uh, across Canada and our largest cities, be it Hamilton, Toronto, Vancouver. Um, You know, taxes make up about 25% uh, in some cities even higher of the cost of new housing. And that's a mix between municipal charges like development charges, things like the GST, HST, land transfer taxes. and this is a huge change for rental housing. Uh, I'd love to see uh, the federal government uh, look at changes to how the HST applies to um, ownership housing. Again, the GST came in in, uh, in 1990, and they haven't changed the rules since then. And again, provincially, uh, the previous government back in 2009 brought in the HST. That was a massive tax increase on on new housing, not just for the rental, as we discussed earlier, but also ownership. So I think there's room here and hopefully some momentum in in moving beyond the rental space and, and looking at ownership as well. Better late than never. Mike Collins Williams with his CEO, West End Home Builders Association, GST being removed from new rental construction. Mike calling it a game changer. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Great to be here uh, talking about some good news. We told you, we were talking earlier in the week about this, uh, especially with our White House reporter, that uh, uh, MP, conservative MP, Canadian MP, Michael Chong, was down, invited to the United States to testify in Washington uh, before committee about uh, interference, uh, interference in affairs by the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously an issue down there as much as it is up here. Oddly enough, the same day that this was happening, or around the same time, 
Uh, Canada finally called a public inquiry and announcing who the justice was that would be heading all of that up. Stephen Chase is with us, senior parliamentary reporter. He, along with Robert Fife, the Ottawa bureau chief, have penned uh, a column in the Globe and Mail. Chinese diplomats say it's Michael Chong, not Beijing, meddling in foreign affairs. Uh, Beijing is accusing Canadian MP Michael Chong of hypocrisy for testifying before members of the U.S. Congress this week about his experiences as a target of Chinese government interference. Stephen Chase with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thanks. So as I'm, I'm reading this article, Stephen, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm stunned by the language that is used, and you've quoted here, a certain Canadian MP driven by his own political interests has long been provoking China on issues related to Chinese uh, China's core interests such as Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, related issues flagrantly interfering in China's internal affairs. The embassy said now he is acting like a thief crying stop thief hyping up the so-called lies of chinese interference what about the tone of this letter i mean clearly they're upset but uh, what about the tone it, it almost see uh, again your thoughts well i think they need a publicist first of all because hmm. they always come across as uh, very um very uh almost nasty in the in the way they, yeah. they deal with uh, elected canadian officials uh but yeah they're trying to make the case that because you uh, criticize our human rights behavior, that's foreign interference. Whereas, you know, basically intimidation, harassment, uh, and, uh, you know, influence peddling on foreign officials in Canada is China doesn't do any of that, according to them. And, and that's all lies and, and fake news. So they, um, they have a hate on for Mr. Chong. Uh, you'll recall in May that. Canada actually expelled a Chinese diplomat for the first time in uh, decades because of that diplomat's role in 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 basically foreign interference in intimidating and targeting Mr. Chong over his um, leading a parliamentary motion declaring China's treatment of the Uyghur minority to constitute genocide. So, um, yeah, China is uh, is basically. You know, seems to have a bit of a, a hate on for Mr. Chong, and of course, they put uh, sanctions on him a few years ago as well. How big a deal is it that he went to the United States and testified before this committee? Um, yeah, oddly, oddly enough, a public inquiry—a public inquiry called at the same time—is that a coincidence? I think so. Yeah, no, I think this is basically the Americans waking up to the problem in Canada, or at least starting to turn their attention to it. And uh, it's very rare for a, a, a elected member of parliament here to testify. The last time, I think, was eight years ago when Tony Clement testified before a Senate committee, uh, the former uh, minister, uh, Harper government minister. And uh, no, I think they're, they're unrelated, but they do both reflect the fact that there's more and more conversations between American officials and Canadian officials about how we can cooperate on uh, dealing with the foreign interference that we've really become uh, more aware of in the last few years, and of course, the public inquiry is sort of the ultimate response. Uh, finally, we have a we're going to have an independent inquiry looking into uh, foreign interference in Canada, and of course, CSIS has said publicly, our, our our spy intelligence service has said publicly that China is the foremost aggressor in this space. Uh, why would Beijing accuse uh, Michael Chong of of hypocrisy? Would this not just draw more attention to all of this? Yeah, sometimes I think they're they're actually talking for their own audience back in China, and it's really not for our consumption, even though hmm. those are the responses they give to us. 
I think that there's a tradition, especially in recent years, among Chinese diplomats of what's called wolf warrior diplomacy, and that is to sort of give back as good as you get. Don't give an inch, you know, basically uh, chin up and fists up. So I think we're experiencing a little wolf warrior diplomacy there because it it's neither polite nor diplomatic, uh, and you know it's not normal diplomatic language you'd hear from a, a friendly country. Does Michael Chong testifying in the U.S. ramp up the discussion here? Does it? What does it do for the public inquiry and 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 the investigation that's to ensue? Well, anytime the Americans are talking about Canadians, we do sit up and take notice. And the fact is, that the Americans are talking about Canadians. They are very concerned about what's going on. And you saw there's like 18 members of Congress that sit on this on this congressional executive body, which examines China and, and, and monitors China. And they were talking about the need to work together more. And of course, that's almost polite speak for, you know, the U.S. helping us because uh, there's a lot they can do. They have a lot more resources. Uh, and one of the things they were talking about was on a going forward basis, uh, intelligence agencies and governments in Canada and the U.S. should name and shame uh, examples of foreign interference. Uh, that is, take the intelligence you have, the secret intelligence you have, and start to share some of that. So I think it's a big deal that he was testifying in the U.S. It signifies that this is reaching a, a bigger, a higher level of public debate, and, and there's a lot of us to be more focused on it, because this public inquiry is going to be, you know, nonstop discussion of this issue. How confident are you that the public inquiry will produce answers that are needed? Hmm. Ah, that's a good question. I think that um, there's kind of, a feeling in the intelligence community and in the government that there are a lot of things that need to change. And I think that um, there's, that, that this inquiry is probably going to give impetus to that, give momentum to a lot of the changes that people have been calling for for a while. So I think it's going to be, uh, in a sense, it's going to be a, a, the pressure that's needed to, to sort of uh, uh, have a much more serious debate about national security. It was interesting last week, the, uh, the, one of the uh, business lobbies in this government, one of the uh, business lobbies in Canada, the Business Council um, of Canada, which basically represents like I think half of our GDP, half of our economic output in terms of production, they issued a report calling for a series of of changes to our national security practice. So I think, uh, yeah, it's all coming to a head. I think in the public inquiry, is this? Are we at a turning point then? Do you think that? Yeah, uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I believe we are. Yeah, I think we are. It's starting to become a much more um, uh, like a frequent topic of discussion. There's a lot more awareness of it, and there's a lot of a sense that changes need to be made. So, yeah, no, I think uh, the public inquiry will be a catalyst for that. Uh, Stephen, to a lot of people, this seems obvious. Like if, if you're being interfered, if your elections are being questioned over the last two, like why would you not want to do this? Are you concerned or are you, uh, what are your thoughts on that politicians could be implicated in all of this? Well, you know, it's a common feature of Ottawa that no one ever takes responsibility for anything. And that was, in fact, um, when we looked, when we broke the story about Michael Chong, uh, being targeted by China, and the fact mm-hmm. that nobody warned him, that the government knew this for two years, and the reports went to senior desks across the government. Like uh, <laughs> The Prime Minister's National Security Advisor got up and said, no one person is responsible for this. You can't pin it on anybody. So there's, there's a natural impulse in Ottawa to deflect responsibility, to, to, to defuse it, and then essentially you have no one take responsibility. So I remain a bit suspicious or I remain a bit skeptical about whether we will see anybody having to take responsibility for their actions. 
But I still think the public inquiry is going to lead to a lot of changes in the way we do things. Stephen Chase with a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, along with Robert Fife. Chinese diplomats say it's Michael Chong, not Beijing, meddling in foreign affairs. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, Scott Radley is joining us coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? So far, so good. Surprised today to hear the Toronto Rock will uh, finish their season at First Ontario. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people kind of had their jaws hit the floor because this has been, you know, we, we've had a number of, well, many dates for when this was going to get started. But uh, on Rick Zamperin's show a few months ago, um, the head of UPEG said, no, there will be nothing being booked in that building after the new, after the end of the year. Are you and, surprised? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. And, and so, uh, it's it's very right now very confusing about what's going on. It really is. I, I don't think anybody are, really knows what's happening. Are you surprised we're hearing this from the team as opposed to mm, city officials? I don't. All right, I, I'm not trying to be uh, silly here. I don't know if city officials know. I don't know if city now uh, Hugh Peg is supposed to be coming next Wednesday on the twentieth to council to give some sort of delegation, to give some sort of update. I have talked to some city officials in recent months about this. I don't talk every day with them. Uh, last time I talked, I said, do you know what's happening? And many of them said, not really. So I think this is going to be a really important meeting in front of city council to lay out what is in fact going on. Because again, Scott, I'm not trying to be ridiculous here. I don't think other than the people who are directly involved, Hupeg and this group called OVG, which is a worldwide, big time, enormous, biggest in its class world development or developer in arenas and things. The guy, Tim Lywicki, who used to be the head of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is the boss of this. Um, other than them, I don't know if anybody really has any idea what's going on. And, and at a certain point, while you and I are not going to be doing construction and ultimately it'll be built when it's built, I think for the... Um, it is a taxpayer-owned building. It is a huge part of the downtown revitalization plan. It is a big deal. I, I do think it's important that some clarity is offered so that at some point we have some idea what the heck is happening. And and that's mainly because, Scott, what we're, we've heard with these projects, and I talked to the owner of the Toronto Rock today, I mean, you never know, these things can always, there's always something that's running it off the rails, but every time there's a delay, it usually means a higher cost. That that's for sure one of the things. But look what what else has this delay brought though? These delays, period, plural. The Hamilton Bulldogs, by the looks of it now, uh, the Rock season goes at least till the end of April. They're going to make the playoffs. They always do, so they'll be well into May. The Bulldogs could have played their entire season here now. That's what I'm thinking. That's the exactly Hamilton what Honey I thought Badgers as soon as I heard town. about this. Yeah, yeah, the Hamilton Honey Badgers have left town. Um, there are apparently. No concerts booked. So their their Disney on Ice is not booked. It's always a yeah. big draw during the March yeah. break. So yeah. you, you you have now this arena, presumably, and again, we don't know everything because we're not being told everything. Presumably, except for the dates The Rock is playing, this building is going to be sitting dark with no spin-off benefits for the downtown businesses. The people who work there aren't going to be getting shifts. The Bulldogs are gone. You don't have this entertainment and stuff for people. I, surely, as I say, surely there has to be some real 
I don't mean a little bit, real clarity offered when when they come and speak to council on next Wednesday. And I'll say more than that. I think that city council has almost now has to be the prosecutors on this one. And when Hupig comes, council can't sit back idly and just go, oh, okay, it sounds great. I think we now expect that councillors are going to be asking really pointed, really direct, really non-vacillating questions to say, tell us what is happening. This is our building. What is happening? And this is not just a rah-rah, it's going to be great speech. This has got to be, tell us what the heck is going on, because this thing was supposed to get started originally when they announced it, the summer of 2021 or fall of 2021. Mm. We are miles behind that. And I wrote last week, they still have not, OVG and HUPEG, neither have put in any applications for building permits yet. We're not just days away from being able to do something. Even the applications to get the process started hasn't been put in yet. So there has to be some some answers given at this meeting on Wednesday, and I think direct answers. Uh, you got to wonder if other stuff is coming back. And like you said, that's what I thought of as soon as this extension was was out. Well, could the Bulldogs have stayed here? I mean, we, you know, theoretically, Hamilton could have lost a, a, an OHL team or can lose an OHL team here. Uh, and, and maybe the road didn't have to be as bumpy. I talked to um, future, soon-to-be Ottawa Senators team owner, Michael Anlauer, who happens to also own the Hamilton Bulldogs. <laughs> and... Um, Let's just say uh, he is not, I mean, he's, he's got other things on his plate now. He's been yeah, sometime yeah. in the next few days, he's going to become owner of the bull of the senators. He's going to be dropping a billion dollars on that one. It's a big deal. But even so he was very frustrated by this, that when you learn that all this is happening and we didn't have to be going through this and what's even more frustrating to him and everybody will remember this. And I don't want to relitigate this discussion. But he says, you know, like four years ago, five years ago, I tried to get an arena built at Lime Ridge Mall with a lot of my own money involved and council basically slapped me down and we could have been in a new building right now at Lime Ridge, a lovely new building. Uh, Instead, nothing has even nothing has even happened to First Ontario Centre to get the process going. So it's years down the road still. One step forward, two steps back. Scott Radley with us. Only two? Scott Ra- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe a big leap. Uh, we're going Radley- to be talking about this, by the way, in my show at the first hour. So stick All around right. if you're listening. Uh, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley Show. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great night. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via email from Terry. Hi, Scott. I think we need to discuss the liability issues of the city for further violence at its parks given the many, many violent attacks documented, including the most recent at Beasley. I think it's fair to say the city is not living up to its obligation of providing safe parks for its citizens. Terry, keep right except to pass. 